0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. We're constantly exposed to fake news and bad news. So how do we consume news media today? And more importantly, how do we maintain our sanity while consuming it? I'm Dr. Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, Lecturer in Political Economy and a Media Researcher at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Peter. I'm going to start by asking, what is perhaps a basic question? What should be the purpose of news media?
1: Thank you, Dashran. I think the the purpose of news media should be to provide information so that we can uh, form accurate pictures of a very complex, very distant world in our heads uh, that's the, the, the fundamental purpose uh, at least from a, a democratic perspective uh, from a different political philosophies perspective you know you might have other goals like uh, keeping public support for the government or uh, uh, generating high morale in wartime or what have you but you know from the from the perspective of democratic theory the whole idea is Uh, The the people are to rule, so in order for the people to rule wisely, they need to have uh, an accurate understanding of the world in which they live so that they can make suitable decisions about policy and about uh, personnel, about the politicians that they elect.
0: Right. And when you look at the state of uh, media across the world today... um, do you think it is being practiced the way you described it just now? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, <Right. laughs> how to answer that question other than no, period. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, there, there's a, a, another uh, media scholar, I, I think it was Katie Snow Blanchard, who wrote a, a great recent book, I think called like, The Internet as a, as a Double-Edged Sword. Uh, I'll have to double check on the, on the title, but she made a really good point. And she's talking about the U.S. case in particular. And she says something like, you know, if we try to analyze the, the current media system, we shouldn't compare it against a kind of ideal uh, media system in our minds, like how the media is supposed to work in an ideal sense. We should compare it to you know, really existing media systems, for instance, uh, for, the, for the U.S. case how the U.S. media system used to be in the 70s and 80s. right? And then from that perspective, I think it's it's fair to argue that the, the U.S. media system, at least, has never been uh, this less bad. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't say it's never been this good, but it's never been this less bad from the perspective of what the media is supposed to do in democracy, which is to provide a, a wide range of perspectives so that, you know, people can consider different arguments, consider different policies, know full well what the, the arguments in favor and arguments against are. In that sense, in today's Internet, you know, uh, 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 benefited media system or, or a media system with the Internet added to it, uh, you can compile an ideologically diverse uh, media diet, which I think is the, the sort of democratic ideal. And that was a lot harder to do in the, the 70s or 80s before the Internet, because then you only had, you know, these massive media uh, companies. Granted, there were far more of them back then. Uh, now there's really only like five or six of right. and everything. Uh, but even given that being the case, you still had a, a, a very circumscribed, narrow spectrum of, of ideology, available in mass media outlets the outlets that are easiest to access your radio your your tv your uh, national or even local newspapers so you know in that sense i think there's a a good argument to be made that the the media system has never been as less bad today in the united states globally you know then it gets a lot more complicated because you did have examples uh in uh, northern europe for instance of uh, public service media systems—that is, media systems that were built around uh, government-funded public service uh, media outlets—that you, you know experimented with some very interesting ideas about inserting ideological diversity inside, internal to an outlet, so that for your average citizen, you know, you, you've got limited time. If you want to put in a little bit of time to try to understand politics and inform yourself you can just turn on a TV channel and you'll actually get multiple ideological perspectives on the issues of the day. So, you know, with that uh, uh, comparison system, I'm not so sure if, if what I said about the U.S. can be said about media systems the whole world over. I think that would require more more particular study.
0: Absolutely. And how powerful is news media in shaping, uh, shaping one's perspective and worldviews?
1: Uh, the way that I put it uh, was that the the media is God, um, but the the media is God in a kind of like a, a Greek or, or Hindu pantheon where you've got lots and lots of gods. And right. What I mean by that is the media is an incredibly powerful force in influencing what we believe. But, of course, there are other powerful forces operating at the same time. Um, so, you know, it, it's... This is a topic that I think a lot of people shy away from. And I think the reason for that is that it, it can be profoundly threatening to our own sense of certainty and really uh, security in, in our political beliefs and our political identities. Because once you you recognize that uh, the media is a, is a powerful influence over what we believe, the next corollary, the, the, it's a kind of a logical consequence, Is that what we believe might be wrong? Right. Uh, You know, we can just do, you can do any number of thought experiments, like put yourself in the shoes of, you know, if you're an anti communist, put yourself in the shoes of a Soviet citizen uh, throughout the history of the USSR. Do you think you would have an accurate view of of what's going on in the world? Probably most anti communists would say, no, I, I would have been propagandized. Okay. Well, what about you living in? Let's say you're talking to an American, United States, be an anti-communist. What about you? Well, they would say, "Well, because we have a free media system, I can choose, and I, of course, choose uh, with impeccable taste uh, the the correct media sources, and therefore my view of the world is correct." Right. Uh, there's a there's a name for this phenomenon. Uh, it's called naive realism, and it's the belief that. I see reality as it is. My my picture of reality in my brain in my mind is accurate, and then it can get uh, it can produce some negative consequences when we assume that everyone else sees the same reality. Therefore, my political opponents must be motivated by something evil or, or, or something uh, profoundly selfish, you know, right. because if we both see the same reality, but they take the opposite position, well, you know, they, they must be motivated by some bad motives, bad intent. Um, so it's a it's an issue that I think makes people uh, very defensive because you, you have to recognize your vulnerability and your your reliance on the media sources that you happen to use.
0: Right. And with that in mind, do you think the presence of news and and news media encourages us to forget what we actually feel or what we would otherwise actually feel um, in, in relation to certain events.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question because it, it gets to the the difficulty here. Mm-hmm. Um, I I hate to always have to uh, cite. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, the, the war criminal and former uh, Secretary of Defense, but I don't know which philosopher actually came up with this, but he, he, he said, uh, you know, there are no known knowns, unknown knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. <laughs> um, and that typology is, is you know, very accurate. Um, we don't know so much of what we don't know. We don't even, we're not even aware of our ignorance. And then there are other things that we know that we don't know. Um, when it comes to that question, that really uh, gets to the, the the kind of key point of our reliance on the media. If we never hear about something uh, through our media diet, then for us, it just doesn't exist. We are radically ignorant of most of knowledge in existence, and a lot of things are just unknown unknowns. And that's, I think, the the most pernicious form of, of media power is in selecting what to present to people and what not to present to people. And you know, that can be done with, with uh, negative intention, with bad, malign intent. It can be done with, with good intent. Um, it, the intention is, is irrelevant. But you had this, uh, this Catholic conservative intellectual, G.K. Chesterton, who, who uh, I think put it very well. He said that uh, the blackest of lies is, is not even untrue. The blackest of lies is 100% true, but what makes it the most pernicious form of lie is what it leaves out. Selection is the fine art of falsity. Once you give me the, the power to, to select whatever I want, uh, then it, it, you know, I have the most relevant form of power. I don't need to lie at all. I can just pick out truths, and then exclude other truths so that your interpretation of reality becomes deeply skewed in the direction that I want. So I think that's the, the most uh, dangerous form of, of, well, one of the most dangerous forms of, of media bias. You could, you could just call it bias as a shorthand. It's the perspectives that it leaves out.
0: At its core, can news be unbiased? Whether we look at, you know, when we are reading an article... Or, you know, we are turning on the news on TV, whether it is, you know, an independent media or whether it's a state-controlled media, things like that. At its core, can news be unbiased?
1: That's a, a great question because I think the way that bias is used is kind of naive. Uh, it, it's, it tends to be used in the sense, and and this is basically the, the concrete reality under Underlying the use of the word bias, right? The way it's really used is to mean uh, someone who thinks differently from me. If they think differently from me and they present uh, information in a way that makes sense from their perspective, but it's different from my perspective, then it's biased. Um, and you know that's a that's a, a naive use of the term. And I think it it really can't. It's difficult to find. Uh, a logical sort of set of rules to use that word correctly. you know it, it's kind of like uh, pornography where the Supreme Court says you know we can't define it, but we know it when we see it right uh, I think it, it's kind of like that when we when we talk about bias in in the news media. Um, there's a philosopher of science uh, Miriam Solomon who, who wrote a book called uh, uh, Social Empiricism where she argues that, in science, we shouldn't even use bias as a as a term to say that you know this science, scientist is biased in favor of that hypothesis. No, uh, if you look at the history of science, all of these so-called biasing factors have, at different times, produced scientific advances because what we call bias uh, inclines someone. And one of the examples was uh, uh, a sociologist, a feminist sociologist, who uh, looked for. Positive benefits of divorce, things like reductions in spousal abuse, you know, that that sort of thing that uh, male sociologists hadn't looked for. So what she says is, let's get rid of the word bias and call uh, them uh, a neutral term. Uh, her term was decision vectors. Right. Uh, uh, things in one's life, experiences, your ideology, etc., that. Uh, influence your your scientific decision making, and sometimes can lead to uh, you know scientific breakthroughs, like the example of that sociologist looking for benefits of of divorce. I think in in politics uh, we should we should try to think similarly, uh, because in a sense we're all biased. Uh, there is no objective position that we can take right. and then look at everyone else outside of that position and say, oh. They differ from me. That difference between my beliefs is the extent of their bias. That's just naive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think it makes much more sense to think in terms of everyone has absorbed vastly different information sets about the political world. And because they've absorbed vastly different information – their understanding of how politics works. What is the good for society to aim for? Uh, what is the best political economic system? Uh, all of these sorts of things, they, that's the, the, the product of the information that they have absorbed over the course of their life from the media, from schools, from their parents, from their peers, etc. cetera. Uh, So we're all biased in that sense. But because we're all biased in that sense, I don't think it makes sense to use a pejorative word like bias to describe
0: it. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, Lecturer in Political Economy. He's also a media researcher at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After a break, I ask him for tips on consuming news media. We'll be back on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, lecturer in political economy, and he's a media researcher at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're discussing how to consume news and maintain sanity. So, Peter, there has always been inaccurate news throughout history. But what do you think, Peter, differentiates the current uh, situation uh, to situations of decades past, uh, as far as fake news is concerned?
1: Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the, the phenomenon that we call fake news has always existed as long as the the, the news media has existed. Uh, you can have examples of false stories that are are disseminated by media outlets, um, but the what we call fake news today, I think it's fair to say, has has kind of exploded in frequency, uh, most likely as a as a direct result of the internet. Uh, reducing the cost of entry uh, for for new players to enter the the, the media and have a website or have a presence on on social media, et cetera. Uh, So that's a a major contributing factor. And I think the other major contributing factor is really uh, not really much of a variable. It's been a constant, uh, at least in the history of the US media system. And that is the commercialism, of the the system. It's built to be a commercial product. It's it's run uh, by the the same basic uh, principles as any other business in a capitalist economy. So it has commercial pressures of all sorts. Uh, You have to worry about what your advertisers might do if they don't like a, a story. You have to worry about your audience. Is your audience not going to like a story and then turn to a different outlet? Um, You have to worry about, you know, attracting the most wealthy audience because advertisers uh, particularly care about uh, people with more money in their pockets, right? So you you have that long running feature of the U.S. media system. Then you also have the introduction of the Internet with its uh, drastically lowered uh, uh, cost of entry. And then in combination, you have this uh, uh, motivation for all sorts of people to create News stories that they know will get clicks, will get attention. Something that you know fits in with people's pre-existing beliefs or, or prejudices. And uh, they they just you know they, they create completely fake stories that they hope or expect will go viral, and then they can make money out of that. Right. So I think that's the, the kind of new development in, in fake news. It's it's not like it's something that just emerged for the first time. You know, over the past couple of decades, it's been something that's always existed during the the history of the media. But in a sense, you can say it's been supercharged by uh, the the lowered uh, cost of entry provided by the Internet and by this long running feature of many media systems around the world, which is commercialism and the, the profit motive.
0: And what would you say is the impact of this sort of supercharged era of fake news that we're living in, fake news on steroids? What is the impact of this on on individuals and larger societies?
1: Well, I think the primary impact has been uh, greater polarization. Um, You know, the the US is, (laughs) again, the example that I'm most uh, familiar with, but you can see the, the same sort of thing in India. I think India has been a a kind of trailblazer in using uh, new media for political ends, primarily from the the RSS, uh, the BJP, the the Hindutva right. Uh, They've been very effective at using uh, social media like WhatsApp uh, to share, you know, people will will share fake news. uh, They'll share uh, real news as well, but it it has an aspect of, of manipulation because of what it excludes, what it right. doesn't show you. And that, uh, by all reports, has been very, very successful. Um, and it's created a, a much more dangerous uh, India for uh, people outside of the, of the Hindu majority or even outside of the Hindutva movement. Um, and you can see, you know, to a lesser extent that happening in the U.S. as well. Um, you can see that in, in Russia. You can see that in many countries around the world. Uh, so I think the the primary effect has been greater polarization because if you have, you know, people in these these information bubbles that are more separated from what other people are 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 uh, learning, uh, what the knowledge that other people are getting, uh, I think greater polarization, distrust of of uh, other citizens who think differently, is a almost unavoidable consequence.
0: And one other criticism. Um, I've heard when it against news and news media, it how it's it's about how it has the proclivity for drama and the proclivity for bad news. Everything is always negative, doom and gloom on the news. D- do you think this is valid criticism, um, Peter? Because where I'm getting a little stuck with uh, stuck uh, when it comes to this is that shouldn't news show us the harsh realities of the world rather than ignore it? Yeah,
1: I mean, you make a perfectly good point there. Uh, you want the, the news media to give people an accurate picture of the world outside of them. And if that picture happens to be overwhelmingly negative, then the news media, you know, their presentation of it should reflect uh, that reality. Um, but, you know, the the criticism about the media being too negative, I think there's a, a, a valid side of it. Uh, and it it basically overlaps with the critique of the negative effects of commercialism on media systems. Right, and that is if media outlets find that negative stories get more attention, get more clicks, get more eyeballs to sell to advertisers, uh, then they have a, a a very powerful motivation to present overwhelmingly negative stories, even if the Actual reality of the world is a little more mixed, and there's, there are also uh, more positive stories out there that they're ignoring because positive stories might not get the same, you know, attention. So, insofar as that is the the reality of media systems in various countries, uh, then I think that that criticism is quite valid. But your rejoinder is is likewise perfectly legitimate. The the question really is uh, whether. Positive stories out there that really should be getting attention are not, and I think that there probably are instances of that. Uh, particularly, you know, it depends on what you view as positive and what you view as negative. You know, if you view the, uh, for instance, like the the the, the uh, movement around Corbyn in the UK or the movement around Sanders in the U.S., if you view those as negative because you think that their policies would be harmful. Then you're not going to see that as a positive story at all. You'll see that as a negative story that perhaps you don't want much attention given to because it might, you know, uh, that attention might increase the power in, in each of those movements. But if you see those as, as positive movements, uh, then that sort of thing is the thing you would want the media to focus more on because it gives people uh, a more accurate picture of the world around them, that there are very different political options available that, that could be implemented if there is enough you know, public support for them. So uh, that that's my kind of yes and no answer to your question.
0: I think you've done a, a really great job at, at sort of painting just how a complex of a media landscape, um, uh, you know, we have today on a global level in, in 2022. Um, so the question then is how how, how do we survive this? Or, or more accurately, how do we manoeuvre this complex landscape? Because on the one hand, you have, um, like what you said earlier, where if you ask someone who grows up in, in Soviet Russia, uh, sorry, so the, in the Soviet Union, um, you know, the USSR about their views of the world, um, they will give you a particular perspective. And then if you go to um, the, the um, United States of America and you ask someone, they will have a very particular type of the view, uh, the view of the world. And both sides will think the other side is wrong. Um, and then you also have um, on the other hand, um, you know, this rise of fake news um, that we've talked about. You know, this supercharged era of fake news. Um, you know, WhatsApp messages. Anybody can be a you know write something on the internet these days. Um, social media, and then also on the other, uh, on the comp- on a separate corner, you have all this sad news that is happening in the world, right? So, how do you, um, Peter Beattie, maneuver this complexity? How do you consume news? So I I try to do the the
1: thing that I. I mentioned before like try to create a ideologically diverse uh, media diet. So for for basic factual information about what's going on in the world, I tend to rely on the, the financial press. And the reason for that is, uh, if you if you read the political economy of media literature, you you start to understand the, the structural pressures that operate on media outlets that produce uh, you know a, a limited spectrum of, of opinion in their pages and their coverage. Um, but some of those pressures operate a little differently for the financial press because their uh, audience, their customer base, or at least the, the, the audience that they then sell to their customer base or advertisers, uh, really require and demand accurate information about the world because they've got a lot of skin in the game. They've got a lot of money uh, riding on uh, having an accurate picture of the, the political and economic world. So when it comes to just you know basic factual what, what's happening, uh, I would turn to the the financial press. Um, but then you you also need uh, uh, kind of interpretations of what's going on in the world, and for that you know I would try to uh, what, what what I do is I, I try to uh, accumulate an ideologically diverse media diet. So I'll use uh, Monthly Review, which is a, a small scale socialist magazine in the in the U.S. Uh, for a, a left perspective on global political economy. Um, I'll look at the economists sometimes to, to see what the kind of global ruling class perspective on the world is. Uh, I wouldn't you know, trust their economic understanding uh, at all, but it is useful for understanding what you know, uh, highly educated, high income, uh, more powerful people all over the world are, are reading and believing. Um, I'll look at uh, the American Conservative magazine for a, a kind of paleo-conservative uh, a view on events, and then I'll use uh, uh, Twitter for you know uh, in a much wider uh, selection of, of different ideological perspectives. Not really for the you know the stupid little tweets of you know this is my opinion, this is it in 300 characters or whatever the, the <laughs> limit is, but using Twitter for just you know when people tweet out articles, right that. Can be actually useful. The, the, the little quips back and forth, totally useless. Uh, it can be fun if you're, you know, looking at cat videos or whatever. But uh, for actual political understanding, you know, you can't really rely on on, on that. But it, Twitter can be a really good thing for, you know, re- being alerted to articles that you should read from from different perspectives. So, I, I hope I I gave a, a, a decent enough answer to your question. When it comes to other people in different parts of the world, um I think that same basic uh, plan can be followed. It would just be uh, different media sources that you would use to try to get that ideological diversity.
0: How do you steer clear away from fake news? or how do you detect fake news? And, and you know, because from on the one hand, right? um we've done many shows critiquing how, um, you know, the mass media is, especially in, let's say, the US, um, but just in many countries around the world, how um, rich and powerful people have bought over the media and, and things like that. And and so I think naturally there has been a sort of pushback by the masses um, or, or sort of distrust by the masses towards mainstream media. You hear that uh, a lot these days, you know, you can't trust the media, you can't trust the media. But I think what then um, follows is also another problem where people just trust everything that isn't mainstream media. That means every WhatsApp message that comes in. You know, if, if some crazy person is saying that don't trust the government because, you know, you, you're taking the vaccine um, is a way for them to control you and they're injecting microchips in your body and, and so on and so forth. It is also a, a sort of anti-establishment press, uh, anti-establishment content. And people say, okay, if we can't trust mainstream, then let's trust this. And this says everything Big Pharma does, everything to do with medicine, everything to do with modern medicine. For example, you cannot trust what the government is saying. How do you maneuver that? How do you see through that? And and so you yourself do not fall into that pitfall of, yes, I don't trust the mainstream media necessarily, or I'll trust it less. So I, But at the same time, I shouldn't be you know, just trusting every message that comes in. How do you maneuver this crazy fake news world that we live in?
1: Well, there's a cliche in in the US. uh, It goes, uh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but uh, no one's entitled to their own facts. And the, the idea is there are, facts out in the in the world what's really actually happening and that can't really be contested but of course the interpretation of those facts can be done in all sorts of ways and everyone can interpret uh, reality according to their own you know uh, beliefs the information they have etc so it seems to me that the challenge is if you have a, a a good degree of media literacy, like you, you, you understand political economy of media. You understand the, the kinds of pressures that are operating on on media companies that might influence their their coverage. You also have to apply that same thinking to the stuff that you're getting on uh, WhatsApp or other uh, social media or other smaller non mainstream outlets. Uh, non mainstream outlets, if they're for profit entities. Have the exact same commercial pressure that have been influent, that has been influencing uh, uh, legacy media companies, massive media companies, for decades now. So just because something is coming from uh, a non-mainstream source isn't a seal of approval at all. It's just telling you that uh, the, the the bias structure, the, the the forces operating on this entity might be a little different, but the commercial pressures are still the same. So they, there is a, 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 uh, a pressure in the direction of getting more attention, getting more clicks. So when I see something on uh, social media that is very, you know, kind of new and, and shocking, uh, like for instance, I saw somebody uh, uh, share a, a video of uh, a naked boy climbing out of uh, Buckingham Palace uh, <laughs> using a, a sheet and then falling uh, as he's climbing down. And people are sharing this like, oh my God, you know, this is more evidence of uh, uh, pedophilia in the royal family. And for a lot of people, it's like, well, th- I don't need to check that anymore because I already have learned that there are very credible accusations of pedophilia in the, ro- in the royal family. So this video just confirms what I already believe. This is just another piece of evidence. But if you see something like that, you can also just search around the Internet, because if that sort of a, a story were true, then it would have gotten picked up, perhaps not by uh, the BBC, but it would get picked up by uh, at least independent journalists. And as soon as you start searching around, you, you, you come to learn that, oh, this is actually a clip from a, a TV show. And then people are, are sharing it as real news. So, you're OK, well, that's clearly fake. So I think you can you can solve this problem somewhat by uh, searching more broadly to see if if journalists you know people whose 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 income salary their whole working life is to uh, learn about what's going on relevant to politics and write about it and, and disseminate it see if they're picking up on it. I mean I that's. Basically, what I did when it came to the whole Russiagate story in the U.S. in 2016, 2017, if you remember, it was this uh, uh, conspiracy theory that Trump was controlled by Russia and Putin, and he was a a puppet of Putin in the White House. You know, I I saw a lot of that in the U.S. media, and so I was curious, like, okay, well, if if there's really something to this story, and it's not just wishful thinking on the part of people who are more aligned with the Democrats and were absolutely shocked to their core that Trump won the 2016 election because they couldn't imagine that, that happening. Uh, if, if that is what's going on, then I wouldn't expect the international press to be paying that much attention to it. Um, but if it's something real, then the international press would be all over it to the same extent as the U.S. media. Because if that story is is true, if there's any real good evidence for it, the whole world would be interested in it. That's a fascinating story. But when I, I looked around the, the the international press and found that they just weren't covering it to anywhere near the, the breathless degree that the U.S. media was covering it, then, you know, I, I, I had... Uh, profound skepticism to that story from the from the beginning so that's the sort of advice I would I would give to people you know make your, yourself media literate like read there's so much to, to read in political economy of media you can start just reading my book you can find it on uh, library Genesis if you don't have the money to, to buy a, a full copy but read political economy of media so you, you understand the, the pressures that operate on media outlets that might influence their coverage in a way that you might not you know be aware of. Uh, diversify your, your media diet by, by picking outlets from different ideological perspectives. And when you do see something uh, very shocking or, or uh, I don't know, eye, eye-catching on social media, on your WhatsApp groups, uh, search around if it really is something that is well-evidenced uh, you'll have journalists working for some outlets somewhere in the world also covering that story. And if you, if you see that that doesn't exist, I would recommend treating that with a very high degree of skepticism um, until you, you, you know, find some more uh, trustworthy coverage of that, of that story.
0: So that is how you maneuver fake news. What do you do about all the bad news that is happening around the world? Because on the one hand, you want people to be informed. But the more people are informed, there is also this chance for more um, anxiety, um, you know, sadness, um, this feeling of hopelessness or or lost. What can I do? You know, that, that sort of feeling. How do you manage these feelings? Because we are talking about a time where, you know, there is war, um, you know, there is, um, you know, threat of World War Three constantly on the horizon. We have the refugee crisis, we have the climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We want people to be informed about all this. How do we pre- manage the anxiety that may come with
1: well, to answer one of your questions, you know, how, how do you answer, uh, how do you manage these, these negative feelings, mm-hmm. uh, from reading about the world? Uh, my answer would be not very well. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, 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 really try to distract myself with, with other pursuits. Like right. the, the American football season just started mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, Cardinals Raiders game and the Dolphins uh, uh, Ravens game were amazing. I highly recommend checking them out. Um, but, you know, in, with all seriousness, um, I think it's it's fair to say that the, the news of the world right now is profoundly negative. I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, wars. Uh, you mentioned, I think, well, connected to that is uh, threat of famines and, and starvation as a result of right. uh, rising food prices and uh, reduced fertilizer supply. All of this stuff, and then that's not even touching on the the global ecological crisis of which climate change is a a, a major major part. And it doesn't seem like anywhere near uh, the amount of of transformative change that the IPCC uh, reports have been calling for the past two reports. It doesn't seem like that kind of change is anywhere near the horizon. Yep. Uh, so yes, I think it's it's fair to say that the the picture one would get uh, of the world uh, by trying to you know read from diverse sources, getting different perspectives, is profoundly negative. Um, when it comes to the uh, dealing with the the, the potential uh, cynicism or pessimism. Uh, you might have as a result of getting that understanding um, I think Antonio Gramsci's advice is still really good advice that that we should have uh, we can have pessimism of the intellect but we should have optimism of the will. so even if we we think rationally that the situation we're in is a very dire one, a very pessimistic one we should act our will should be optimistic so we should act as if we were optimistic that is take political action to try to uh, solve these problems. Uh, so when, when, when uh, trying to transmit an accurate picture of the world to other people and, and giving them you know, the, the, the real picture on how dire the situation is, uh, there's something from the psychology of persuasion that I think is relevant here that, you know, like I think was implicit in your question, you're, you're kind of worried that by giving people an accurate picture of the world, which is in a very perilous state, uh, that might make people just kind of tune out. Uh, figure, okay, there's we're doomed. There's no point in doing anything. I'm tuning out and right. focusing on American football instead, <laughs> or whatever you know the, their, their way of distracting themselves is. Um, the, the the insight from psychology of persuasion is if you're going to give somebody bad news, uh, you need to also package that with something positive. Like, yes, we have this ecological crisis. But if we get a, a organized mass political movement to pressure governments all over the world, we still can solve this crisis and, and create a much better life uh, for the overwhelming majority of, of people on this planet. So the, that's the insight from the psychology of persuasion. If you're going to give people a very negative pessimistic picture of the world, you've got to, to add to that uh, a, a, a solution. Uh, it might be a difficult solution, But you've got to present people a a concrete solution, Uh, like you should uh, volunteer and and work with this political movement or or campaign for this political party or or politician, something that people can do so that it's not just uh, a a narrative of, of doom and hopelessness. And so, you know, you might as well just tune out.
0: So I just have one more question for you, Peter, before we wrap this whole conversation up. Given everything that we've discussed, is not consuming the news better than consuming the news. And the reason I ask this is because I watched a YouTube channel called The School of Life and they came up with an idea that didn't sit too well with me. And what the video essentially said was, and I quote, There is almost nothing we really need to know outside of what has happened outside our own heads and in the lives of 10 or so people who count on us and so you don't need to consume the news, especially in 2022. Seems like privileged thinking, no?
1: In ancient Greece, they had a word for that, uh, idiot. <laughs> uh, an idiot was someone who did not participate in public life and in, in politics. Um, so that I think is is a great statement of idiocy. Uh, there's also another, another saying that you might not be interested in politics, but politics sure as hell is interested in you. Um, you know, you, you might think that you're too tiny to, to make any sort of, of impact. And in a sense, that's, that's entirely true. Like as individuals, uh, we can't really have any, any major impact on anything in the political realm. But as individuals organized into larger groups, uh, then we can have uh, impacts on the world. So, I, I mean, on, a, on one very, very limited level... You know that uh, the statement that you just uh, quoted is true. Uh, if you can just ignore everything about politics and just focus on your personal life, uh, you might be happier. But you might also not be happier when uh, the ecological crisis gets even worse, and in your country there's a massive reduction in in food production. There are uh, famines, mass migrations then your personal life, even with those 10 people closest to you, is going to be profoundly negatively affected. And if you had been involved in politics, not as an individual, but as an individual, as a member of an organization, acting in concert in unison, uh, you might've been able to, to change that to avoid that, that, uh, that problem and then improve the lives of you and the 10 people most close to you. So yeah, that's, that's my perspective on that idea.
0: And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter.
1: Thank you, Dashran. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in political economy and media. He's also a media researcher at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.